Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hi, I'm Jackie Broad. I'm an ARC Future Fellow at Monash University, Melbourne, and I'm listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. Woman throughout the ages has been mistress to the law, as man has been its master. Frida Alder, Sisters in Crime, 1975. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And I'm speaking to Associate Professor Jennifer Baker about virtual ethics. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, could you give us a definition of ethics? Yeah, well, virtue ethics is what we use to refer to a long tradition in ethics. I mean, one easy way to think of it is that we have uh, three major options in ethics. We've got consequentialism as an option, Kantianism as an option, and then we have the oldest option, which is the account of ethics that we have from Plato and Aristotle, the Stoics, Epicureans. But we don't all not all virtue ethicists follow the same model as the ancient Greeks, so it's kind of a large umbrella of views that can be referred to as virtue ethics. So, for example, some people work on Nietzsche as a virtue ethicist, some people work on Hume as a virtue ethicist, but I work in the ancient Greek tradition, and and one way we could refer to the the view is to refer to it as as happiness ethics, because it really suggests that our, our practical reasoning is guided by this aim of, of being happy. That's what the ancient Greek philosophers I mentioned all thought, even though we think of their views in distinct ways. So what was it that inspired you to study virtual ethics? Well, in college, I was taking a course in Aristotle, and they would write words in English up on the board and discuss them for 20 minutes, and I couldn't keep up, so I kind of put it as a personal challenge try and understand Aristotle. <laughs> and the good news is it happened sooner than I would have thought. Um, it took maybe a little bit of Greek, and I never got very good at it, but it took a few more courses. Now I really think I get Aristotle, maybe not every passage, but I got to work with some of the best teachers in Aristotle anyone could possibly imagine. So that's how I got interested in the ancient Greek ethics. And when I was a student of Martha Nussbaum's, at the time she would kind of pit Aristotle against the Stoics, and she was very pro-Aristotle. But then when I got to go to graduate school with uh, Julia Annis, she made such a good case for the Stoics that despite myself and despite my earlier allegiance to Aristotle, I slowly became Stoic. Right, so you you converted. I converted. (laughs) Yeah, too many good reasons. (laughs) The Stoics are just one type of of virtue ethicist, and, you know, Aristotelian virtue ethics is more common but they really aren't that different. 
one thing I like about the Stoics' view is that it's been reformulated to be a modern view, so kind of separated and defended apart from any ancient anachronistic commitments. And one really good bit of work that did that is Lawrence Becker's A New Stoicism. So I like using the Stoic approach because it can also just be considered a modern approach. Right. Have you got an example of, of how they modernized it? Yeah, so he kind of leaves all the ancient references in an, a large appendix. You know, most of us who, who care about the ancients, we're, we're dying to know what they thought. So we'll blend an account for a contemporary audience with our interest in what the ancients might have meant. And what I've noticed is that contemporary ethicists just don't have a lot of patience for that. And it's actually kind of confusing, right, because even people who work in that tradition might for a while be going with what Aristotle said and then for a while editorialize. So using Becker as a kind of basis in any modern formulation of, of virtue ethics really helps me to, to put everything on the table when I'm making a contemporary ethical argument and to hopefully not be off-putting to people who don't study classics, hopefully. So how do you propose actual ethics as a guide to reform the U.S. policing? Well, I got interested in policing reform um, through a a personal experience. I I hope I cared about it a bit earlier, but I was actually arrested on my campus for having not paid a a speeding ticket. I had paid it, but I hadn't, like, turned in a form or something after I paid it. And it was a pretty brutal experience. I mean, I was really shocked at how I was treated. I was shocked at how difficult it was to breathe in handcuffs. I was, I was shocked by all of it. And thinking as a virtue ethicist, I just was amazed at how my colleagues were treating me, you know, the, the, the officers at my college, and I just couldn't understand how they were thinking of their role because it just seems like such inhumane treatment to me, but obviously they're, you know, proud of their job and, and feel well justified. <laughs> so I kind of got interested before some of the scandals hit the news in the United States. So Chris Brown was a son of a, a friend of mine from high school, and that was in St. Louis where I was from, and some of the other scandals actually happened here in um, Charleston, South Carolina. Some of the sheriffs I've spoken to have said that these scandals are just the result of people having videotapes of things that otherwise wouldn't draw our attention. But I really either doubt that or don't care <laughs> that that's the reason for new attention to police violence. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a, a sort of crisis, and, and even crisis for law enforcement agents themselves, because I think it's become too difficult a, a job and a, an untenable role for them to play for the rest of us. So I've been trying to use an ethical approach instead of a political approach. I'm really interested in securing interest from law enforcement officers themselves. I kind of see that as key to reform, as if we need them, not just to be supportive of reform, but to give us ideas for reform. And I think virtue ethics can be pretty appealing if if presented fairly to people who are really committed to the notion of a duty to a role and sacrifice for a role. So I'm, I'm hoping there's some promise in an ethical approach, but it's partly pessimism about political approaches. I'm just not sure we'd ever have the collective political will to reform policing, given the, given the, the lay of the land in the U.S. politically now. 
Well, well, even here in Australia, there was an Indigenous woman who was arrested and I think she had around $1,000 worth of parking fines or speeding fines. And uh, she, she, was, she was arrested and I mean, imprisoned and she died. And, yeah. you know, there was an, a public outcry because did she deserve to die for the, for the sake of $1,000 worth of fines? So, and, I mean, you mentioned before about being, being handcuffed and how difficult it was to breathe, you know. So, oh, it's, yeah, so the, the, it's, this it's, is... It's violent. Yeah, right. Mm, yeah. And there are some approaches that aren't ethical. You know, I'm, I'm trying this ethical approach, and I'm, I'm trying to model it on the way bioethics has worked in the past few decades. Like, I'd like to suggest ethics committees and police departments and that type of thing. But I have noticed more legal theorists uh, questioning, you know, just the, the uh, due process of the current system that we have. There's a nice article out by a professor whose last name is Harmon called Why Arrest? And I thought it was just wonderful. I mean, she's questioning why we arrest for crimes that aren't violent in the first place. So that's, that's an effort that's not ethical, kind of a, a political set of questions she has, but it, it, it may be promising and, and hopeful as well. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I did see a job advertised a couple of years ago here, and it was for uh, somebody with a philosophy degree to go and speak to police and explain about ethics oh. to them. So I was quite excited when I, when I saw that. I thought maybe, maybe they realise that there is a need for change. Yeah, right. I mean, I've been impressed by this will to change that's, that's been here in, in Charleston, South Carolina. So there's been a kind of commission, a justice commission, that brought together all the different police agencies. And I've been really impressed by, like, the data they encourage being gathered, gathered you know, data that doesn't always reflect real well on uh, who we are arresting, and at their kind of earnestness in trying to come up with solutions. And the solutions have been very much in-house solutions. So things like people don't show up for court and then they get warrants, so we need to text them reminders. Things like having a, a drunk tank, they call it, but that's more medicalized and not at the jail. You know, just things that I don't think people who don't work in law enforcement would ever even imagine. So I, I do think we need the people working in the system to be supported and be interested in reform. And I'm, I'm hoping ethics is an easier way to reach people than, than political theory. Could you explain about the publication, The Collapse of the American Criminal Justice System? Well, I've relied a bit on uh, William Stuntz, the author of that book, and he has a really interesting diagnosis of how our criminal justice system has failed. You know, it's one perspective, but I'm always looking for uh, confirmation that he's, he's on to something. And he just points out the changes that have kind of happened and not on anyone's watch. So he doesn't think our system today is the result of any design. And then for me, that's interesting because that would mean there's no real justification for our system, of the parts it has and the way it works. And some of the things that have happened is that we've stopped relying here in the U.S. on jury trials. That's very rare. People get convicted after agreeing to a plea bargain, and there are reasons why they do that, why, they, why they're so amenable to plea bargains, and it's because the penalties are so incredibly stiff compared to what they used to be in the past. So, you know, earlier in the 20th century, that your sentence for murder might be something like seven years, right? And we aren't used to that at all anymore. 
And then he also thinks there's a problem with prosecutors not being elected by locals, by the citizen, citizenry, that will be affected. He, he kind of worries the suburbs elects the prosecutors for the cities where there's more crime. And he doesn't like that police departments aren't controlled by locals either. And he, he, again, he doesn't think this is because of any design or anyone's effort, but it's just been kind of a pendulum. He actually thinks we were kind of ineffective on crime in the 70s, and then the pendulum swung in the other direction, and as crime started to decline, we started to get to develop harsher penalties and a harsher approach to crime. So that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And, and now we have arrest rates that are similar to the highest arrest rates the Soviet Union had when it comes to the arrest of uh, black Americans. So it's kind of intolerable. What is the connection between norms and virtual ethics? Well, I think a lot of talk about virtue can be kind of off-putting, and I'm not interested in doing anything like that. And so I like to use Aristotle as a a model um, when it comes to how being interested in, in virtue for him was a matter of pursuing the right norms. And so by norms, I just mean something informal that can be stated, that describes good behavior that's not personal, right? So just, you know, you should write a thank you note would be a norm, right? Or, you know, obey the police without uh, question would be another norm. You know, people deserve life imprisonment for murder is another norm. And what Aristotle role models for us is the kind of thinking process that's involved in coming to recognize that you follow a norm, you know, that's got to be a conscious thinking process to even realize that your behavior can be described in terms of a norm, and then to begin to question it if there's some type of tension. And there can be all kinds of tension. So there could be tension between one norm and another norm you follow. There can be tension between, you know, the, the, the role you've just grown up and you're accustomed to and other things that you think are ethical. So you'd have to, like, adjust your understanding of the role. You might not be motivated to do something that society has taught you is good. That's going to be another type of tension. So the process of becoming more virtuous is one I think is just very simple and like one we can recognize in our own behaviors when we're you know, aware enough of something not going right. And that's just sorting through the norms that we think we should follow and trying to find one that we can actually endorse. So I like that description of how we become virtuous. It's less mysterious. It doesn't use any anachronistic language. In fact, I've tried to have it checked by contemporary behavioral scientists to see if there's anything strange in it that they find implausible. And it it, it seems like they are very comfortable with the idea that we kind of come up with self-rules for ourselves. And so I'm happy about all of that, and it's my favorite way to explain virtue ethics. (laughs) So what is the situation with ethics and arrest practices? Well, I think it, in, the, in the paper you're referring to, I try to propose the norms we follow here in the U.S. when it comes to our support for the police. So I suggest that we probably believe a few things and support a few things that are false. So I think we believe people are only in jail for good reason. Right? I mean, there might be reasons we believe that that are good. So we might think people are usually caught in the act when a police officer finds them and we can trust the police officer. That might be fine, but what do we really mean by good reasons? I feel like the data on arrest, which has been very difficult to get, but that we have now about Charleston, South Carolina, that suggests that 70% of people who are spending time in jail 
actually don't get convicted of the crime for which they were arrested or the crimes for which they were arrested, I feel like that would that would cause problems for that norm. But we can't comfortably believe that those detained in jail are there for good reasons in the face of that fact. And then I also think we're very comfortable with the idea that people who are arrested are only suffering short-term harm, and so it doesn't matter that people are arrested. And now we have, you know, a big deal if it's a mistake or a big deal if they aren't convicted. But now we have some work by uh, sociologists and also some older older work by uh, criminologists that uh, point out the effects of arrest on a person. And they're very significant. <laughs> you know, no surprise, I would think, but people just don't think much about other people being arrested. And if we did think more about it, I think we'd realize we need to change our comfort with arrest practices in the U.S. in order to just maintain, you know, the idea that we're fair people that don't wish needless harm on others. Could you explain about virtue ethics and the police? Yeah, so again, I'm hoping that police officers are attracted to the notion of virtue. I think they are already. I mean, there's been some work by uh, Nancy Sherman on stoic ethics and the military. And, yeah, there's been a history with uh, military figures relying on uh, stoicism. And there's also now connection between military kind of ethos and police ethos, because one of the most popular, I don't know if you'd call him a philosopher, but one of the most popular thinkers for police officers is an ex-military officer named Dave Grossman. I think it's Dave. And he equates the role of police to the role of the military. So he sees them both as warriors. So I think there's there's a, a chance that if the military is attracted to stoicism, police will be attracted to stoicism. And if that's true, I think stoicism can provoke new thought about the role and can provoke attention to the requirements of agency so that officers should, if inspired by stoicism, kind of demand more decision-making, demand more input into what they're doing, demand more... I mean, they do have a lot of discretion and they do have a lot of... They have a large role to play in, you know, which which, uh, laws are applied to us. But I think stoicism would encourage officers to look at those anew as ethical as ethical issues for them to consider. So I'm hoping I'm hoping the approach is attractive to them. How are virtue ethics applied to law enforcement? Well that that would be the way that it would apply. It would have people take, you know, kind of personal responsibility for the orders they follow. So one thing I was surprised by in my arrest is that when I finally figured out what it was for, I was so surprised that they were detaining me for so many hours and not allowing me to call my children, all for the DMV. I was just so surprised. I mean, you're doing this for the DMV, the uh, Department of Motor Vehicles. By the time the next day when I got to the Department of Motor Vehicles, they were so embarrassed. I mean, they didn't even want to hear my story that I had been arrested for this form I hadn't turned in. So, like, that kind of chaos is really incompatible with the notion that virtue ethics maintains, which is that we're only going to figure out ethics when we have people kind of experience the consequences of ethics. You know, we'll need a system that we understand, one that humans can appreciate from one perspective, and we'll also need police to feel really ethical about, to feel that their role is very ethical, fully ethical. And I've seen this happen in the medical field 
you know, I'm not quite old enough to remember when physicians resisted the idea that paternalism was bad, but I'm certainly now in a moment where we did a large survey on physicians in our area, and I'm certainly aware that now medical workers are very positive towards bioethics, and they want more of it, and I think they really identify with it. So that was an ethical approach that was kind of brought in as a attempt to mitigate against some harm, and it seems like it's really been embraced by clinicians. So I'm hoping that happens with policing. Now, they do have codes of ethics and things like that, but I've only noticed a kind of like scornful, mocking attitude as if ethics is just a limitation on what they really want to get done. And, and you know, as a virtue ethicist, I would hope they, they end up seeing ethics very differently as, as a supplement to their own account of, of what's good about their job. Yeah, I think everything you've said about the situation in America yeah, is very relevant to Australia and, and probably the rest of the world because I think Australia doesn't seem to be very far behind um, the states on on various various things sort of coming into play here. And I remember a few years back there was a wheel clamp, the first time wheel clamps had sort of come to Melbourne anyway, and there was a... a a gentleman and his um, wheel had been clamped and he was on a lane in a freeway and he just got in his car and he said no. He said this has to stop and he stayed in his car. They couldn't tow his car because he was sitting in it and he said he was he was calling talkback radio while he was sitting in his car and he, <laughs> which was quite amusing, you know, here I am sitting in my car with a wheel clamp, one of the first in Melbourne, and he said, no, I'm refusing to move from the car, so they can't tow the car, and it's blocking off a lane of the freeway, and he said, they're going to have to remove the wheel clamp, and it went on for a few hours, I think it went on you know, during the morning peak hour, and they realised he was still sitting in his car. And he, they realised that they would have to remove the wheel clamp, and they did. And it was like everybody was cheering. It was like this victory. <laughs> oh. you know? Yeah, that sounds familiar. <laughs> I, I quote uh, a law enforcement officer who, who was posting anonymously on a police board about a shooting that happened here in the, in the city I'm in where an officer shot a man who was running away in the back, killed him. And um, he'd been pulled over for a broken taillight. And the officer, in response to that, defending the the shooter, was saying, what does the public expect, that we're just going to let someone run away from us? We can't just let them run away from us. I mean, they now are committing a crime and running away from us. And it's a strange justification of doing anything in the face of any defiance. And I'm, I'm sure that's what the officer believes. But what virtue ethics would try to get people to parse out is whether that type of commitment to total submission of the people they encounter is really tenable. You know, does that fit with the kind of authority anybody should have over anyone else, you know, <laughs> any category? And, you know, what are the consequences of trying to take on that type of role? And, you know, just, just trying to analyze those commitments is what I what I'd hope would happen. Yeah, especially with the with the gun laws in different countries. And if you look at New Zealand, the police there don't carry guns. And it is very, very rare that there is any gun crime in that country. So I think they're a very advanced country in that way. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a dream of mine, unarmed police. 
Yeah, well, even now at my local shopping centre, I was I was quite shocked because they have people going to local shopping centres now, and if you have any fines on your car, they'll put a wheel clamp on it. And this car, this car was literally sitting there for about six weeks, and even had one flat tire, but it just sat there with a the wheel clamp on it. And I thought, well, how? What sort of fines do they have? Is it? Do you have to sort of be over a certain limit? I I don't know myself, but it seems ridiculous. It, I think that it's one area that should be separate to, you know, the the law enforcement regarding the police, really. And if it was, you wouldn't get situations like like you being arrested and handcuffed on campus. Right. And I feel like police, one of their self-conceptions, that the, the Grossman figure who, who pushes this metaphor, is that they are the sheepdogs, we the public are the sheep, and the bad guys are the wolves. So that's like a real popular metaphor for law enforcement here in the U.S. And there's a real problem with it if it's taken seriously, because people who do petty little things like fine violations, they really shouldn't be treated like wolves, and yet they are. So there's an example of where I would hope the self-conception, if taken you know, seriously and consistently, would get police themselves to kind of resent that they're in charge of these kind of poverty fines, is how I think of them. And there have been some efforts here to end bonds, so to end um, the bail system, because it harms the poor to such a well-established extent. So most of the people in our jail in Charleston have been arrested for most of the people arrested are African-American, and most of the people have been arrested for marijuana possession. And loitering is the second most common. And then 70% of the people in the jail are there because of an inability to pay bond. So 70% never get convicted, and 70% in jail are just too poor to pay bond. And if you're in jail, you have a harder time preparing for your trial, and you have worse outcomes. So it's just not it's just not just from any, you know, there's just no way to defend <laughs> defend that part of our system. There's no way to do it. So some to somehow bring some, like, ethical urgency to that is would be good no matter how it's done. Yeah, the, I think there's always been a, a, a different law for the rich than there, there is for the poor. But do you have any right. future study plans within this field? Well, I am hoping that I can convince people with the paper. I mean, it's a funny way to kind of test philosophy's normal methods. I mean, to, well, if I write a paper on the idea that police departments could use ethics committees the way hospitals do, will that reach the people I want to reach? <laughs> it may not. You know, maybe they'll never read it, but it'll help me think through the issue. So I'm working on that when it comes to policing this summer, and I've tried to solicit ideas about the viability of ethics committees in hospitals, because you know, there's some criticism of them being too conservative. It's a place where you can be heard if you have objections to how the hospital is handling some issue, but you often get, you know, kind of satisfied just by being heard. It's not so clear that, you know, policy changes because the ethics committee is open to complaints. So I, I, I have encouraged philosophers and clinicians who have experience with ethical committees in hospitals to submit papers to the Eastern American Philosophical Association for a group I'm co-president of on the topic of an ethics committee. At the same time, I'll be trying to figure out what obstacles are in the way of us using ethical committees in police departments. One problem is that police departments are run hierarchically. Of course, so are hospitals in their way. 
but that's really something I'd like to argue isn't good for officers. You know, it's, it shouldn't be run like the military's run. In fact, it's not, right? So to describe it as run um, in the way the military is run is to kind of misdescribe the role of police and society. So I think that'll be fun. Yeah. And also, I'm always working on the Stoics, so I've got I've got a Stoic approach to business ethics in the works and a Stoic approach to economics in the works. Yeah, it does sound like fun. Thank you very much for coming onto the program today. Oh, it's fun. Thank you. I know I've been speaking to Associate Professor Jennifer Baker about virtue ethics. Well, hope you've enjoyed the program today. I've certainly enjoyed your company and tune in again next week same place same time and also stay tuned for are you looking at me you're listening to radical philosophy on 3cr community radio 855 on your am dial and i'm lucy main a master student at monash university